the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. Well, it's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to this week's Three the Back podcast, brought to you by BackpageFootball.com. I'm joined this week, as always, by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you, lads? Good evening. How are we doing? So, as Liverpool prepare to lose one European behemoth in the shape of Virgil van Dijk, news of another being created in the form of a European Super League has raised its head after Project Big Pitcher's plans were overwhelmed mainly denied at a recent Premier League ballot. We'll be talking about the boat. We'll also be taking a look at this week's Champions League action before it becomes defunct. And in part two, we'll be focusing on Aston Villa's amazing start to their second season back in the Premier League with Omar from the Villa Talks podcast. So we'll be talking about what went wrong last season and what's gone right over the summer and into the first few weeks of the season. And that's coming up a little bit later on. But first, Phil... Um, only one place to start, really, and that's the Merseyside Derby from the weekend. And we spoke about it before um, the international break and, and our show there about, you know, this is a pretty good chance for Liverpool to move beyond the Aston Villa disaster and kind of not make it a thing. Um, and, you know, we kind of said, you know, it's pretty silly to be talking about psychological um, problems with the players. And, you know, a win over Everton was a pretty decent chance to, to move on from that. And then obviously off to a very good start very early on with Manny's goal and then the injury to Van Dijk and, and talk about anything that is going to knock the wind out of your sails. Um, it's an injury to, I think it's fair to say he's been the most important player Liverpool have signed arguably in the modern era. Um, up there with the goalkeeper certainly in terms of solidifying the defence that was such a problem for so many years and you can see the results and the trophies that that has kind of brought in with him. How do you view the injury in, I suppose, Liverpool's outlook for the season? Will Do you think objectives have to be realigned now or are they kind of human in the grand scheme of things or is there enough in other areas to kind of carry them on through this? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of split about how I feel about it. Like, obviously, when he went down... Um, and knowing that like Van Dijk tends to play nearly all the available minutes in the Premier League and Champions League, it, it was a worry. And as these kind of reports and counter-reports came out pretty quickly on Saturday evening and Saturday night, that it looked like crucial. And then the, when the confirmation came, obviously the initial feeling is, oh God, like that's it. That's you know the detriment. That's like completely detrimental to, to Liverpool's hopes of achieving anything this season. And like there's definitely merit to that. Like you said, he came in and completely, nearly overnight revolutionised what that team was like they were kind of that kind of end-to-end great entertainers in the first half of 2017-18 and earlier under Klopp because they'd noticed lean heavily on the and, and like Van Dijk has been a massive part in creating that kind of aura around Liverpool that has been that has been there for the past two seasons anyway that a lot of teams tend to not even bother trying to attack him like he's he's been shown in the past, that like like any defender, he like he's obviously better than he's the best centre half in the world. But if you give him something to do, he has to go and do it. Whereas a lot of teams, because of the reputation he carries, were focusing more on Matip or Gomez, whoever happened to be beside him. And so he he's improved Liverpool and given them an aura that's kind of been ebbing away a little bit since football came back because Liverpool have, can, have been starting to concede a few, not least at Villa Park where he was on the pitch when Liverpool conceded seven. But they are a lesser team without him. There's, there's no doubt about it. And in a world where you could trust Matip and Gomez to be the two that would see Liverpool through until January at least, you wouldn't be overly disappointed about it. Both of them have shown in fits and starts that they that they have enough quality to be a centre, like either of them to be a defensive leader for Liverpool. The problem is Matip's already out and Gomez has gone through a bit of a rough patch. So I think that's probably where my concern comes in more. And it's something we talked about a little bit at the start of the season. And that Liverpool hadn't gone and gotten an extra centre half despite losing Lovren and Matip only I think the Merseyside Derby was 
he played he played ninety minutes, so I think they were his first minutes since um I think he played two minutes since the restart or something. I can't mm. am I right there? Anyway, I I read a r- ridiculous stat that he played two minutes. Uh, I think since the last Merseyside derby, maybe which was the first game back after the restart, um, and he's out again already. So you're re- removing Liverpool's defensive linchpin, one of their two best players, three best players. Um, and you're not replacing them with anything that you can rely on. So I think that's my major worry. Uh, if you look at the fixtures, other than City away, you could maybe see them getting to, to January in a decent shape with a combination of Matip, Gomez and Fabinho. But I can't. I don't think you can pretend it doesn't weaken Liverpool's position on the two main fronts they'll be fighting. Yeah, I think what it highlights as well is... Um, you know, I felt when Gomez actually came back from injury last year, he was just as important to the team as Van Dijk was. And I remember thinking this guy is going to be England's, you know, best defender for the next decade. But he's really started to struggle this season. And I think he really needed Van Dijk beside him in order to just kind of find a bit of confidence again. So it'll be interesting to see if Fabinho does move to centre-back, which he probably will, um, you know, if Gomez can actually step up and kind of improve his form. Because if he doesn't, I think that could just be as detrimental to Liverpool as the Van Dijk injury. Um, Also, you know, as we touched on, you know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about who do Liverpool need to bring in? And they just seemed obsessed with bringing in, you know, extra players to cover the front three. And they did that with Diogo Jota. But if you actually look at their options for centre-back, considering that they were pretty much one injury away from uh, a Matip, Gomez... Uh, centre-back pairing, it does seem now a bit naive to, to go into such a, a heavy scheduled, shortened season, um, not bringing in a centre-back. Uh, Lovren actually scored a belter tonight for uh, <laughs> Zenit, as always seems to happen with teams when they lose a player, you know. Um, so, uh, if you actually look at their squad, they have a lot of young uh, players as backups for their back four in particular. They're heavily stocked in midfield and for the front three now with Jota coming in and obviously Origi and Shakiri still there. Um, so I think they've just been let themselves down a little bit by not covering the centre-backs. Phil, I think both of us are, are fairly big fans of Joel Matip and, and Gomez um, over the past couple of years. And I think, you know, it's easy to say that both of them look really good when they're next to Van Dijk and then when you lose Van Dijk and the club maybe probably rested on their laurels a little bit when um you know they didn't go for a, a more solid backup option especially when you sold uh Dean Lovren who in fairness to him as kind of inconsistent as he can be he was generally always available um to be there from called upon and you know you're bringing in a wealth of experience um whereas with Matip obviously the question mark over his fitness is always going to be there and, but um I mean on their day I think both of them have been very, very good. Um, I think the year the cha- we won the Champions League, Matip was excellent. Um, and I think a lot of people just kind of forget about how good Matip has been in the past and how good Gomez is uh, when he's on top form. Um, so, you know, it's not, the, the, I don't think it's the end of the world, but I think the, the huge thing now is relying on those guys to be fit every game. And straight away, we're already um, without Matip um, for the Champions League game this weekend, or this week, sorry. Um, so, you're, like Enda said, we're probably going to see Fabino there. And then you're at the situation then where you're pulling one of your best centre midfielders out of the game. Um, and when we're missing Thiago as well, I think, this week, um, yeah. you know, it, it's not going to be ideal. Um, in terms of, you know, not bringing in the, the, any defenders during the window and... I remember after the first couple of um, uh, friendly games, you know, the 17-year-old Billy Cometio was kind of being bigged up as, as as a guy they saw as capable enough to come in um, and play some games. But I imagine, like, by games, they meant League, League Cup games, um, you know, early FA Cup games, perhaps. Like, there was never a situation where you're imagining where you're going to be without Van Dyke for a prolonged uh, amount of time and you know like it's so hard to prepare for that then when that happens um phil in terms of the merseyside derby itself um it was probably one of the most um kind of anticipated derbies in a long long time everton have been going so well they've uh, probably the best team on paper that we've seen in a great number of years um it lived up to the hype um i mean it was feisty for for a derby that had no 
fans there to watch it and definitely more feisty than some of the, the games that we've seen over the past couple of years that did have fans at it. Yeah, it was probably um, the, the best Goodison derby since that um, mm. mad 3-3 draw when Martinez was um, was Everton manager and Rodgers was Liverpool manager. That was, that was a, a belter, but under Klopp, they tend to be, tended to be very kind of close uh, cagey affairs like Liverpool nicking a one nil or a lot of nil all or one all draws. Um, this certainly wasn't that. Uh, I did think everything kind of got drawn into a pattern which is more typical of how they play against Liverpool than they have played so far this season. In that, like a robust and physical Everton is oftentimes what you see when they rock up at Anfield. You think of um, Funes Mori getting sent off for that tackle on Origi a couple of years ago in a midweek game. Um, they, they, they got. I think they, they play the occasion a little bit to fall into a cliche. Um, other than the ten minutes after Van Dijk went off, I thought Liverpool wobbled, and I thought uh, fifteen minutes in the second half, um, Everton were on top. But other than that, Liverpool kind of got a bit of a handle on it, and um, Everton fought back to equalise twice. So that, that's to their great credit, and probably speaks more to the type of team that they're becoming, and that's a good sign. Um, but I think Liverpool did show them for kind of sixty or seventy minutes. Um, the, the, still the, the gap that exists between the two sides in kind of general play um, but it was like if Liverpool are going to draw a Goodison every year give me a two-all draw don't give me Van Dijk doing the screws yet but give me a two-all draw <laughs> <laughs> uh, over what we got uh, the first game back from um, from lockdown which was uh, you know kind of paint drying um, yeah it was a great game um, James and Thiago these kind of two new brilliant uh, Big name signings were absolutely great in their own ways, and um, and Calvert Lewin. I mean, from a Liverpool point of view, I really like if they marked and paid attention to the fella who really loves jumping for headers. They didn't really do it that well, and um, but uh, he thought he rose the occasion as well. And um, so, like, there's plenty there for Everton to work off. I think from Liverpool's point of view, they definitely showed that what happened to Villa Park could end up staying there because they were pretty good notwithstanding the the uh, two goals they let in. Yeah, I'd agree with Phil on, on on that one, just kind of with Everton's approach. I was actually, there were times where I was just a bit disappointed with Charleston in particular, didn't really get into mm-hmm. running at Liverpool's back four, considering the start he's had to the season. Um, and, you know, Ham has started pretty slow, but once he got into the game, a bit like Thiago, I mean, they, they were both pretty class. It's just bizarre to think that they're both playing now for Everton and Liverpool, um, considering how good they were for the last few years. Um, but uh, I, I think overall, I think Everton will obviously be the happier with, with um, you know, the disallowed goal at the end and the red card. But um, I think there's so much more to come from them as well. Obviously disappointing to see Seamus Coleman get injured. It was bizarre really that he started at all actually and was at fault for the first goal. Um, but I, I felt the actual uh, Cavert-Lewin goal was interesting just from a Liverpool's perspective because because of the influence that Van Dijk has, it's not often that Robertson is caught actually at the back post like that. Yeah. And he didn't even jump for it, you know? So it'll be interesting to see if teams try to exploit that a bit more going forward because if you think that Alexander and Arnold and Robertson kind of on the cover in the air, they've never really had to deal with that too much in the kind of their Liverpool career because Van Dijk has been so good. So it'll be interesting to see whether that's something that develops into a bigger problem for them going forward. I thought actually Robertson was excellent on the day, in fairness. That was just um, a bit unfortunate for the goal. Um, and Calvert-Lewin in the air is absolutely insane. Um, but no, it was it was a great match. Um, and I think the, the timing of the match as well probably made a difference. I think a lot of the uh, Goodison to Merseyside derbies in the last few years, they've been towards the end of the season where Liverpool have kind of yeah. been hanging on to either stay top of the league or... Uh, chase someone so it's all been very tight whereas earlier in the season I think the 3-3 was in September as well a few years ago so so that made a difference as well but um, you know it was, it was really good just to see Everton for once um, you know really challenge Liverpool man for man which they really struggled to do in the last few years Yeah good early kickoff um, of a Saturday morning usually has the ingredients for a, for a big game um, I just echo what you said about Calvert-Lewin I mean his stats say everything. I think he's probably one of the best number nines in England at the moment. And, you know, something to keep an eye on as the months go by for, for the rest of the season. But he's, he's re- really playing himself into a situation where, you know, Gareth Southgate must be thinking, you know, uh, 
who will I go with in 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 Euro twenty twenty one next summer? Um, he's playing that well at the moment. Um, or you kind of do you have to fit both of them on at the same time? So um, an embarrassment of Richard is there for for England at the moment. Um, in a couple of other games uh, to talk about from the weekend, um, Saturday there was a point where Frank Lampard was was uh, hosing it in and looked kind of justified in, in everything Chelsea had been doing and then on Sunday we were um, we were thinking about Tottenham as potential <laughs> title winners um, trina up against West Ham there at one point um, and this all kind of feeds back to some of the crazy results we, we've seen over the past couple of weeks already and you know it, it's going to be interesting to see if the likes of Southampton and West Ham and that kind of profile of team are able to get results against the bigger sides who are going for for the top four. And we've already seen a couple of mad draws um, and big high-scoring games. Um, Chelsea in particular, I mean, I was kind of ruining um, taking Team of Warner out of my fantasy team um, this week, seeing pop in with two goals very early on. And then, in fairness to Southampton, um, came back very, very well. I think Che Adams... Is kind of starting to show that form he had in the championship a couple of years back and led to Southampton spending a lot of money on him last summer. And uh, um, we were kind of left at it beforehand, but Peter Cech is in the Chelsea squad um, for the Premier League. Um, and Frank, after the game, speaking about Kepa, I think he came up with some lines saying, um, yeah, Kepa's a, a Chelsea player. So, you know, we haven't forgot about him, but I think um, in different circumstances, he probably doesn't play in that game with... Um, with uh, Mendy out injured. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a funny one. We were talking about it before beforehand, you know, and uh, myself and Phil had a bit of a chuckle at the Southampton equaliser there during the weekend um, on Twitter as well. It was just one of those bizarre goals that had seven different things go wrong at once. You need the Benny Hill team music really behind it when watching <laughs> that one again, you know. But, um, yeah, I mean, Kepa's just a bizarre keeper, really. I mean, there are two occasions where he could have just picked that ball up. And I feel like it's almost Chelsea trying to send out either an unnecessary message to someone that they would include Czech in a squad of 25 players, um, including Caballero, by the way, as well. So four keepers, which is you know just insane. Yeah. Um, so I just can't make any sort of sense of it at all, really. But it must be pretty devastating for Kepa. I mean, all jokes aside, he still is a young keeper, you know, and mm. is the world record, uh, which never really helps anybody. Um, and his confidence must absolutely be just shot to pieces at this stage. And I think the last thing he needed was greatest Chelsea's greatest ever keeper <laughs> just being randomly named in the squad uh, a few days after, you know, another bit of a disaster by him. So, um, you know, I, I felt similar to Carius at Liverpool at the time. You kind of just hope he gets a loan away from the club just to kind of, yeah, for his own is. sanity, really, just just to kind of get yeah. away from it. Although Carius got absolutely taken to pieces in Turkey as well by fans and media, etc. So, Hopefully he gets a good move back to Spain and, you know, um, somewhere a bit closer to home and kind of restart his career, really, because I think he's just finished at Chelsea mm. at this stage. Um, if he wasn't before Mendy joined, I think Saturday was the final nail in his coffin. And then just name and check in the squad for reasons neither of us can make sense of just really seems to just, you know, just, just must be devastating for him, you know. Um so I feel sorry for him now. I mean, I've got a lot of entertainment out of Chelsea's <laughs> defensive woes this season. Um, but, you know, on a on a human level now, he must be absolutely shot to pieces. Um, and De Gea was there at one point when he was a young player and he was lucky that he was able to get through that um, and had a different manager and squad around him at the time as well. Um, but I don't think it's going to be the same for Kepa, unfortunately. So um, I'd be hoping he gets to move away from Chelsea sooner rather than later. Chelsea are talking about the unprecedented effects of COVID-19 in their statement as to why Czech was included. And to me, that's a nonsense. Like, I mean, why would you like, like to, that doesn't explain why you'd pick a 38 year old retired former player to be in that squad. Like, it, I completely agree. And it like totally undermines Kepa in a way that he absolutely didn't need and is a completely needless and kind of classless move. Like, to, like if you want to pick your under 18s goalkeeper and put him in your squad. Like at least that's an active player who might turn out to be like Peter Cech is 38. He's retired two years. He, <laughs> he works. In, he works in the office. He wears his glasses. He wears the suits. I mean, I just I, I can't believe it. It's it's the more I think about it, the more worked up I get about like how pointless a statement it is and how classless it is. Like you said, and about a young guy 
who's come over with a lot of expectation, who it hasn't worked out for. And like you said, hands up, I've absolutely laughed at things that have befallen Chelsea on a football pitch, but like he can't be in a good place about it. Um, and to include a fourth goalkeeper who, and I can't stress this enough, is 30 fucking eight and was retired. It's like the Ukrainian goalkeeper. He, he was in the, in the coaching ticket for the Ukrainian team. He had to be called into the playing squad because of COVID. And maybe that's where they got the idea from. He'd been retired for four years and he had to get called up as emergency cover because all the other goalkeepers uh, had COVID. But like, that's not the same situation here. Um, I, I just can't get, I'm absolutely flabbergasted at like, however broken the relationship is with the club, like don't play him, don't include him in your squad. Like we've seen it with Ozil and Arsenal not included in the squad. Don't include him and then also include Peter Cech. I mean, may as well include me. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to Juve lining out Pirlo now in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, that's the next step or Carrick for United, you know. It would have been an improvement probably, but, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, this is such a strange one. Um, like, Czech hung up his rugby cap a long, long time ago. And uh, as well as that, like, I mean, if, you know, God forbid, Chelsea was struck down with some sort of COVID situation where a couple of players were missing, I mean, it's happened in the past. Like, if you need a goalkeeper, the Premier League have usually been, you know, quite flexible in terms of getting guys in on, t- on short-term loans. I remember Liverpool got in. Um, was it Paul Jones years and years yeah. ago? Um, yeah. on a short-term loan for like a month. I mean, like, if you're missing two or three goalies, the Premier League aren't gonna aren't gonna leave you hanging there for for a couple of weeks. Um, very very strange one. On the other side of London, then Phil. Um, there was a stage there where Twitter was ablaze with um, with Jose Marino as the kind of th- this reinvigorated man, the manager reborn, ch- leading Spurs back to back to the top of the Premier League, and 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 it was just it was just going absolutely too well. And then um, I think it was the seventy second minute, Gareth Bale comes on, and is that just a coincidence that it ends Triol? Yeah, I mean, like he obviously had the, the great chance and um, to, to make it four, and he slipped or whatever, and did very well to even get into the position. I mean, like it, it's and we kind of talked touched on this off air. Like that three all is in keeping with this kind of crazy pattern we've seen so far this season with like all all these high scoring games and things being completely topsy turvy. Um, and like of, for West Ham of all teams, like Davy Moyes' West Ham, that was the other thing about the first half. It was Moyes' first game back. They were after being great the two games that he was away from for COVID. His first game back and they're 3 0 down <laughs> um, after whatever a half an hour. Um, but like I, I think it's just one of those really weird like they happen in normal times anyway. They're gonna happen an awful lot this season, I think. But like the, the momentum of the game just completely swung away from them. Was it the eighty second minute it was still three 0 or something? Um a, a good header a good header from from the centre half from Balbuena, a really weird own goal and then like once in a four lifetime shot from Lanzini, like a like a swinger, um, with with a first touch that broke to him from from, a, from Harry Winks trying to run away with the ball, um, like it was incredible, absolutely brilliant. Um, I don't know if it does down Spurs' title challenge necessarily. I don't know if it does down um how good Son and Kane look together. Um, it's just exceptionally exceptionally funny. Like it's just great that it happens to Josie as well. I can only imagine how much Ender enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, aggressively turning puser. Oh, stop! His face at the end. I mean, I'll I'll remember that for a long time. But I I I just feel that there was a team this summer, and I don't know if it was because of COVID or whatever. But teams not strengthening in positions where they needed to strengthen was such a a, a weird thing for me. I mean, if you look at Liverpool, they probably needed you know as we've discussed back up for a centre-back and maybe an improvement on Firmino. United needed a right winger and a defensive midfielder. And you could kind of go through almost every club in the top six or eight and think they really didn't strengthen where they need to. And for Spurs to lose Vertonghen to Benfica, uh, obviously mm-hmm. after not giving a new contract and to not bring in an experienced centre-half, it would just mm-hmm. seen out that game, would have taken the pressure off. And then you have Sanchez, who just seemed to have so- some mad moment in him every game. And as you said, for the, uh, for the own goal, like it was just bizarre, such a needless one. It's not one of those where somebody's behind them and it's definitely going to be a tap-in, you know, it's pretty wild. So I just feel like Spurs are kind of suffering from, you know, the lack of bringing in a real high-quality centre-half. I actually thought he might go for Pepe. I know he's 37, but he's 
you know, having a bit of a renaissance at Porto in the last two years uh, and is still in the Portugal setup, or maybe even Jose Fonte, just somebody he's worked with in the past who could, he could have just brought in and, and would have really just settled things down for Spurs in, in their back four. Um, but, you know, it, it, like that Lanzini goal, I mean, <laughs> it's just huh. like, it's just so in keeping with this season. It's just such, mm. such a bipolar season. Like, I mean, I, I, I was caught up in the Twitter hype of 3-0 thinking, geez, could Spurs do? And I already had images in my head of Mourinho <laughs> lifting the league again. And, you know, people, you know, LUHG, Twitter saying we never should let him go and all these things. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> by the end of the match, you're thinking he's not beaten Newcastle, Everton or uh, West Ham at home, which is pretty disastrous for Spurs, you know? Mm. I mean, mm. the result at Old Trafford aside, those are, those are three games you would have said they really need to be getting at least seven points from. So to only get two is a bit of a disaster for them. But I think there's so many points out there to be dropped this season that it's almost, it's a bit too early to be making judgments on any team. I mean, City against Arsenal were, were pretty flat. Liverpool are obviously going to struggle without Van Dijk and, and Spurs are a bit kind of up and down as well. So it could be a very strange season. It could be made for, you know, another Leicester type performance. It could be Everton maybe or, or somebody else to come through. Um, it's, not not United, but <laughs> uh, so, so, somebody else. It, it, it really is there for them if somebody can kind of just keep their first team fit and just go on a good run of form for the next few months. Sorry, Phil. No, it, just, it feels more like the kind of seasons that we grew accustomed to in the kind of mid, or sorry, the late 90s, early 2000s, where it, like the last couple of years, especially kind of kind of heralded in by by Jose's Chelsea but especially in the last couple of seasons this like incredible pursuit of perfection where a, a draw for Liverpool or City in the last two years felt seismic and felt really important like teams chasing 95 plus point seasons and um, I don't think it'll be that this year like kind of to your point and I don't think anyone's going to put together 18 consecutive wins this year and, no. and and break ninety points. I mean, you could be looking at kind of high seventies or like sorry, um, high or uh, low to mid eighties that could win the league this year. Uh, that sort of points total, which then definitely opens it up to some to somebody doing a Leicester on it because um, the like the pursuit of perfection was really only attainable to a very small cohort of teams. But the lower that standard drops, uh, all it takes is kind of five wins in a row, and all of a sudden you're in a really good position. Um, it it feels more like a season that we grew accustomed to maybe 15 or 20 years ago than in the last five, I think. Yeah, I mean, back when Arsenal United were going at it, I mean, mid-tie 70s won you the league, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think we could be going that way again. Um, and I'm just looking forward to the league not really being over by, you know, December time, yeah. which we yeah. haven't really had much in the last few years, you know? Um, so it's exciting times. I think the problem is we've not really seen how hectic the schedule will get for teams yet. You know, we already see a lot of players pulling up with hamstring injuries, etc. But once these European games kick in, um, it really is going to be difficult for for a lot of teams out there. Um, so that's why I was kind of thinking maybe an Everton who don't have the European schedule and have a slightly bigger squad. Um, might be able to put something together. So it'll be interesting to see where they're at around kind of December, January time. Or Villa, who we'll get on to. Maybe they'll be yeah. able to maintain something, you know. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Yeah, I've just got a little bit of a fright there because I was kind of trying to think of who could fill the, the Leicester act in, in this season. And if you look at Everton, a kind of a, a malign striker uh, in Calvert-Lewin playing the, the Vardy role. Ham is kind of playing that kind of Maris, um, you know, the pulling the strings there out wide and, and then Allen in the in the um Kente role. Yeah. So I mean if they can uh, get that back Lewin five, doing a Vardy, you know. <laughs> if you if you can get twenty, twenty five goals out of Calvert Lewin, I mean Everton are going to be uh, definitely up there in the conversation. Yeah. Um if it continues this way. Um and then moving on and today the news that um, this European Super League that has been spoken about, um threatened, flirted with however way you want to put it um, for years now, and it's kind of back, and and probably not a coincidence after Project Big, Big Picture uh, fell flat the other week. Um, United and Liverpool are the clubs mentioned as looking to um, possibly break away from the English Premier League, and I don't think it's a coincidence either um, that it's the same clubs that are owned by um, people involved in US sports, um, where the kind of owners hold all the power and all the influence over there, and it's very much kind of owner orientated and how the organizations are set up um how much of a possibility do you think this is or is it just kind of 
you know, is it just talk as it has been for the past 15, 20 years and it's going to pop up every now and then? Or, or is there something real to it this time where, you know, it's actually on the horizon that there will be some sort of a super league or some sort of a breakaway from from the norm that we've that we've come to that we've come to, to know. Yeah, I mean, as you said, this has been thrown around for a very long time in kind of different versions and forums, and nobody really knew what to expect. Um, today really has come about on the back of uh, seemingly getting up to four point six billion dollars from JP Morgan to finance this thing. So it's probably the biggest step we've seen. Um, in terms of the potential of this thing happening as soon as 2022. Uh, I suppose what's interesting about it for me is is that the initial payments up front for clubs that agree to join this thing are worth hundreds of millions. And that's really where you know clubs are going to get involved. Um, you look at the American owners involved, for example, at Arsenal, United, Liverpool. And then interestingly, this seems to be driven a lot by Italian clubs as well, who also have Gazidis mm-hmm. at uh, Milan and Inter Milan have a Suning group as well. Um, so really, people who aren't really too fussed on fan culture or high attendance, for example, Spain have knocked it back a bit this evening. One of the one of the high profile people in Spain did say um, that this thing is impossible to actually go ahead because just the the contracts involved for for TV rights, for example. But with $4.6 billion involved, you'd think there'd be ways to get around that. Um, it's not too surprising, obviously, with big the project Big Picture failing, that they're onto their next kind of get-rich-quick scheme, especially with the kind of Glazers and Gazidis involved who specialise in not spending money and raking in a lot of it. Um, but it seems to be a concept involving kind of 12 to 16 teams and, and then kind of who finishes top of the table going to playoffs. Uh, and that's all we kind of know about it at the moment. But I, I do think there is a possibility now that the finance appears to be actually being put in place for something like this, that that people will pay attention. You mentioned earlier, which I think is a very relevant point, is the American sports finance model is something completely different to what we have yeah. here in Europe. In Europe, we're very driven by, you know, fan attendance um, and gate receipts, etc. If you just look at Europe, for example, or for America, for something like golf even, the USATP tour is set for the next few years because they signed a huge deal, sponsorship deal, back in February, just before COVID hit globally. So they're not worried if nobody ever attends a golf game again for the next five to six years, whereas the European tour, the Irish tour, for example, has already had to cut ties with uh, BMW for next year, and, and we'll see the European tour really suffer. Whereas with America, it's all about sponsorship, it's all about merchandise, and that's really what could be a driver for this thing. It's very... You know, fan attendance isn't factored into this thing at all. So that they'd have absolutely no problem in hosting these games anywhere globally if it meant that this league was to take off. And I think that could be a huge driver of why this thing could actually happen. Because they're really, what I think is they're seeing COVID as this disruptor where fans just don't need to be at games anymore. It's all mm. about the finance and, and the subscription models. And, you know, I mean, we had the Premier League trying to charge £15 for uh, Burnley last night for an all, wow. you know. So who knows what this European League will actually try and charge for this going forward. Um, but I actually think it is a runner um, just because the finance does appear to be actually in place now or potentially in place. Obviously, it's not been signed off or anything, but that was the biggest hurdle so far. And with so many Americans trying to drive this, you know, a few fans speaking out against them, as we've seen in the past, especially at United, that's not going to worry anybody as Joe Glazer sits in a yacht wherever he is, you know. Hmm. Um, So it will be interesting to see what happens now over the next few weeks. But Spain seems to be the one that's kicking back the most at the moment. And obviously Barcelona and, and Real Madrid clean up there. Whereas in Italy and England, the money's split a bit more evenly. I mean, out of 16 teams potentially in this thing, five of them are going to be from England and four or five are going to be from Italy as well. And, and also, it seems to be heavily involved in, in big names as opposed to successful teams. I mean, yeah. Milan and United actually haven't won that much in the last eight or nine years. And they seem to be top two of this, the list of this European league. So it's, you know, for me, it's... It's, something, it's not something I'd like to see because it's going to compete directly with the yeah. Champions League and it would probably ruin the Champions League, to be honest. And it would just make the whole football experience even more pointless than it already is. I mean, it's already been diluted enough. Um, so I, I wouldn't like to see it go ahead. And at the end of the day, if you went to the Glazers and said you can have three or $400 million to join this thing, they'd probably just pocket it anyway. So I don't think United mm-hmm. would actually benefit in the long run. Um, so I hope it was, isn't a runner, but I don't think it's an impossibility that it looked kind of a few years ago. 
I think the interesting thing about it for me is that it's FIFA's gig. So, like, the Super League has always been very, very UEFA-driven. Uh, seen as kind of an expansion of the Champions League. That, like, the, the and with Agnelli from Juve being heavily involved in it, it's been a UEFA project, whereas this is distinctly a FIFA gig and a, 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 a FIFA idea uh, backed backed with the, with the money that we talked about already um, which kind of ties into that idea that like this expanded Club World Cup that they're trying to run or had been trying to run in China because FIFA are seeing all the money that UEFA get from the Champions League and quite fancy a slice of it and the biggest barrier to it happening as far as I see is I think as far as I understand UEFA would actually have to sign off on it and I don't know if they'd sign off on FIFA eating their lunch. Um, it also is, I think, the beginning of negotiation for the format of the next uh, next like phase of the Champions League. So the, the 2024 season for the next three years, I think, their uh, clubs are entering into the negotiation for uh, what that competition looks like. And it's it's nicely timed, shall we say, that, uh, that, that this idea for a, a new World Super League is after coming out just as those negotiations begin. Um, it does feel different, though, to when the Super League conversations come up before. Uh, that's always kind of felt like a bit of a spectre looming on the hill, uh, whereas this, with Project Big Picture after happening and the need for something to happen to the lower divisions of football, especially in England, it kind of feels like a change is coming and a change is going to happen. Uh, quite what that is, if it's this guy's, if it's some sort of zombie project, big picture, if it's European Super League for UEFA. I'm not sure, but I do agree with Enda. It doesn't feel as impossible as it felt before. Uh, oh. This particular one feels like a well-timed leak, though. Yeah, like ultimately we have a bunch of businessmen trying to profit off the fact that football is going to struggle financially for the next six to 12 yeah. months, you know, and that's really what kind of ruins it all. Not that their intentions were ever good anyways, but, you know, to try and take advantage of this COVID crisis by kind of, racking up with a bunch of bank loans and saying we can save your your league or your club um when in, in reality it's just richer rich guys getting richer you know it, it would leave a bad taste i don't think it would be an amazing f- football spectacle you know because we already have these teams facing each other in the champions league anyway it's a format which works mm. very well um and the fact of you know as, as phil said fifa and uefa pitting themselves against each other to be the highest bidder for f- european football isn't really a good look for the game in general so um, I wouldn't be too too upset to see it fall through. Although they'll probably just then try and search for another another scheme down the line, you know, because there there definitely does feel like there is a change coming. I don't know what that looks like or how big it'll be, but you know, obviously f- this whole football without fans thing is kind of building momentum in terms of organisations and you know football bodies trying to find other ways to make money to to function. Um, yeah. So I do think that will lead to something, but but what that is, I, I've no idea yet. Mm. I mean, like when you have big players like Juventus who've been very um, kind of vocal in in wanting to break away from Syria um, and form some sort of Europe uh, European Super League um, and PSG as well. I mean, the league on is going to be no loss to them. Um, you know, you've two very strong cogs already in the machine um, to start that going. Um, and to to go back to the U.S. sports thing, I mean, fans being um, you know being a, a consideration in U.S. sport has long sailed. Um, it's why you know teams have been able to come over to London to play uh, regular season games um, in Wembley. Um, you know, it, it's it's become so corporatized and so sponsored that fans kind of are just in the background. Um, and it's the same now with with soccer that we've seen that football is able to continue on without them. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the main thing that, that I've seen people come up with is, you know, how is this how is this going to be taken by the fans? Like, for example, you know, Liverpool have always been a very social club um, very, you know, localised, con- community-based. But, I mean, we're in a situation now where there's no fans in the stadiums. Um, and in fairness, the, the ownership has been very quick to kind of bow down to fan pressure but there really isn't any of it there at the moment and this isn't aimed at you know your season ticket holder from you know from down the road in Anfield you know this is aimed at a kind of a a generation that has been you know brought up playing FIFA and they're used Mm. to seeing Mm. 
you know, they're used to seeing all the best players in the in the same arena and in the same competition. And whereas we think, oh Jesus, you know, it'd be nice to see Liverpool versus Bayern Munich once a season or once uh, or twice a season in the Champions League. You know, it'd become very, um, very filtered, uh, kind of straight away in, in a European Super League, seeing it happen every year. But like fans are still going to watch it. People are still going to go to the games, whether they're locals or from you know all over the world. Like the, the the situation where clubs have been taken into consideration, the the feelings of the local fan is is long long gone. It, it's it's that ship has sailed many many months ago. Yeah, I mean they're so naive as well. The American owners in general. I mean when the Glazers first came over, uh, Joel in particular, he was shocked that you know there were United fans surrounding his car angrily as he entered the stadium. <laughs> you know, I mean it's like, what did he expect? You know what I mean? Leveraging all this debt straight onto the club. You know, so. Uh, like they just kind of block all that stuff out and just purely look at it for the figures now. So, so the, um, the impact it'll have on, on the local fans will be irrelevant to these people anyways. I mean, yeah. all, they'll look at the United Liverpool friendly in, was it New York or Miami a few years ago that had over 80,000 people like, yeah. so, you know, they know that they can get the audience wherever they go. I mean, we've seen the super cups in Italy and France go to Qatar Spain. and different places in Spain the last few years as well. So, you know, this has kind of been brewing for a while in terms of slowly, you know, I mean, there was almost Premier League games agreed to be held in, in America, wasn't there, recently? And then that kind of was, was pulled. So mm. uh, this has been brewing for a while. And as I said, I think COVID will accelerate it a bit in terms of the opportunists waiting for their to kind of the moment to put the figures in front of people and say how much they can benefit from this. And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's an office small team, have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're joined by Omar from the excellent Villa Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us, evening, Omar. Hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. How are you guys doing? All good now. All good, yep. Um, so, I suppose Aston Villa survived by the absolute skin of their teeth last season. Um, and already into season two, it seems like huge strides have been made. Um, well, I suppose, to begin, what's changed between last season and now that is Villa winning games, um, defending impeccably and unbeaten at the top end of the league? Um, yeah, it's a good good question. I think um, a lot of it stems from um, the the lockdown period. So just before lockdown, we'd we'd lost to Leicester City and we looked down and out. Uh, and I think the lockdown period gave us a a chance to reflect a little bit. Uh, and I think Dean Smith and the, and the coaching staff uh, they took that time out to really look at the games that that gone already and and what we've done wrong. Uh, and they spent a lot of time working with the with the players remotely, obviously, because of what was going on at that time. Um, and they worked quite hard at looking at things like our defensive shape, um, how we were playing off the ball, what we were doing wrong, and really we came back after lockdown a different team. And in the early part of you know, the, the post-lockdown matches, you know, we, we, we played fairly well and we looked fairly comfortable. We just weren't getting the results. Um, you know, against Sheffield United, uh, we should have really won that game, although I know the, the, the VAR call was well, very contentious, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> But um, you know that that you know that when that went, when the goal went in, there was still another half to play, and you know there's not there's nothing to say that we wouldn't have gone on and pushed on and got an equaliser. Uh, and then after that, you know, we had games against Newcastle where we, again we sh- we should have really done better. We had lots of the ball and, and and more of the chances, and really should have done better. And then we played Man United and Liverpool and 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 struggled because you know they're such they were so so such in good form at that time as well. Both those teams, uh, and then the, we finished off that season so well. We looked so good defensively, so well structured, uh, the shape around us and how we defended was so much better than what it was before. Uh, we almost played the opposite way that you would expect a new, newly promoted team to play in terms mm-hmm. of 
you know, trying to be a bit more resolute, a bit more uh, not not as gung ho as we were at the beginning of the season, and then maybe try and push on later on in the season. We did it in the, the opposite order, really, uh, and it meant that the last four games, you know, obviously we did really well and, and, and got got ourselves over the line alongside obviously the other results going for us. But but a lot of it stemmed from that, and and in fact, I think we only conceded maybe four shots on target or three shots on target in those four games, and really ever since that that period, we've sort of carried that on, and what we've done is we've kept that shape around us and, and how we're playing and how good we are defensively and added that quality in the final third with the likes of Watkins and now obviously Ross Barkley as well uh, which has helped massively uh, you know on the counter-attack against Liverpool as an example but also in terms of you know controlling possession which we did for for large parts against Leicester City as well so you know I, th- I think it, most of it stems from from that early part of, mm. of lockdown. I suppose getting promoted from the championship and last summer you had a really busy summer. There was a lot of new faces and trying to integrate so many new signings into the side is, can never be easy. And we've seen a few sides struggle um, with that over the past couple of years. Fulham, probably the most notable. Um, this summer then, it felt like your business was a lot more clinical. Um, you know, it's hard not to be impressed with some of the guys that came in. Um, I thought Matty Cash was an excellent signing. Um, Ollie Watkins has already kind of proven to be a really good player up front. Um, but guys like, you know, often really overlooked, but Emiliano Martinez could probably have gone to half of the teams in the Premier League mm. and done a really good job. I mean, he's he's really improved that goalkeeper in position. Um, but then adding someone like Ross Barkley, even though he's only on a season-long loan, but, I mean, you're adding so much Premier League experience and, you know, it was seasoned international and it just felt like you kind of had that platform from last year, you know, you survived a little bit of a relegation scare um, and now you've taken that opportunity to take the step forward and it seems to be working really well so far. Yeah, no, I completely, that completely sums it up for me. I think that's exactly what's happened. I think last year, you know, there were a lot of similarities to, to Fulham or comparisons were made to Fulham. But in reality, we had to mm. make that number of signings because we had, what, 14 players in the squad left over because of so many players going back from their loan spells and, and also contracts expiring. So we had to make at least 10 signings. And I think we made 11 or 12 in the end, uh, or maybe a little bit more. Uh, and we had to split that 140, 130 million pound budget amongst those players. So in reality, we only have signed... Yeah, you know, the players we signed were ten million pounds a piece, which in these days mm. in, in the Premier League, the way the, the the transfer fees are at this present time, you know, that's not a lot of money. Uh, and you're right, you know, we survive by our skin and our teeth, and, and the quality we bought is massive. Uh, you mentioned Martinez there, and I think that you know Matty Cash and Martinez were the first two two signings that came in in the window, and for, and those two positions really, I think majority of the fans would have said probably not a high priority uh, for us because we had Gilbert. Uh, and we had Steer and Nyland, Kal- uh, Kalinic, and uh, although Kalinic has hardly ever played for us the last couple of seasons, you know, Nyland and Steer were were okay deputies. Um, and, and we were thinking maybe we'll get a keeper on loan just to cover us until Tom Heaton came back. But the fact that Smith and the coaching staff you know, obviously spotted there's an area that needs to improve, you know, fair play to them. They, they obviously know more than us fans. Um, and and they've made a massive difference. Martinez is a fantastic keeper. You know, he's he was ready to play for a top four team. Mm. You know, and that to sign that level of quality, I think um, is fantastic. And and we're quite lucky, I think, because not only is he is he come to Villa, who like you said, survived by the skin of their teeth, but but also come to Villa with a, with the right attitude as well. He's come with a a willingness to you know be number one. And, and get really into the team and, and get behind the club and, and, and try and build a rapport with the fans already. And, and he, I think his, the way his, his character is going to be massive for us this season. You can see that. And, and not only we signed quality, but we've signed the right characters as well. Mm. Um, and I think that's massive. Ollie Watkins, again, fantastic signing. Um, you know, again, like, likewise with Matty Cash, these are players that have a point to prove. You know, they want to make that step up. And Ollie Watkins, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much you've seen of him in terms of his... Uh, his performances but also his interviews as well you know he he's never happy with his performance he's always thinking he can do more even when he scored a hat trick the first thing he said was you know i should have scored the one-on-one and i and i should have finished that chance when i hit the bar and that's the kind of Mm. that's the kind of attitude you need in the squad and matty cash again is is just it seems like a a bit of a fighter to me and you know just it just never stops uh and and like you say it's a really good signing Uh, but, but i think i think the key though really is 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 ross barkley i really do because i think you know, a player that all Villa fans love uh, because of how much he cost and what he's done for us is, is Conor Harahan. 
which I'm sure you guys know very well. Mm. Um, uh, but the issue with Connor is, you know, his output is amazing. You know, he, in terms of goals and assists, he's fantastic. But against the top half teams, he struggles a lot in midfield because he doesn't have the physicality or the ability to run with the ball or the pace uh, that you need against those teams. And what Ross Barkley does is he adds that output that Conor Harahan has, but also adds those ad- other attributes as well. And, you know, maybe he wasn't a... Maybe he wasn't up to a top four level standard player, but I definitely think he's a top six, mm. top eight player. And because of that, you know, he's already one of our best players coming into the squad. And, and again, he, you can see how well he's linking up with Jack Grealish, mm. which is uh, only positive for us. I think I think the key for us will, will be in terms of how we do the season is injuries. You know, we've got maybe 14, 15 players that are key to us and key to us doing well. If uh, we get two or three injuries, then mm. beyond that, we, we will struggle, I think. But yeah, definitely positive. Omar, just on the influence of, of Jack Grealish, um, obviously when he wasn't named in the England side a, a few weeks ago, I, I had a few fights with people on Twitter kind of <laughs> wondering why that was the case. And I had a lot of people responding back to me saying England have a lot of similar types of midfielders. But for me, he's he's has the type of game that no other England type of midfielder has where he can carry the ball, you know, kind of between eight and ten. He's not your second striker. He's not your number ten. He's not obviously a wide player, but he's somebody who can pick the ball up deep and either find a pass or dribble past players, really, and link up with the striker. And he was absolutely phenomenal on Sunday night uh, against Leicester. Uh, I, I suppose I have two questions on him. Number one, is is he the best Villa player you've seen in kind of the past 10 to 15 years? And also just on his England aspirations going forward, Southgate seems very reluctant to praise him, even when he plays well. Is he somebody you think he, he could end up building the side around? Yeah, no, I think, um, well, first on your first question, I definitely think he's the best player we've had since maybe Dwight York in the Premier League. Um, and, and possibly he, he will go beyond that as well, I think, depending on how well he does this season. The only player that's come close to him has probably been Ashley Young, in my opinion, and maybe Gareth Barry for his consistency. But in terms of pure ability, Jack Grealish, you know, he's just, he's just on a different level. And you saw on Sunday how well he played, but us Villa fans who see him week in, week out, knows, know that actually that probably for him was a six or seven out of 10 performance. Uh, for him, you know, he, he the, those fi- there's three or four times there the final ball was lacking. And, you know, maybe three or four years ago, that that would have been the Jack Grealish of old. But actually, since he's come back, uh, he had a you know, pretty bad kidney injury back in the championship. Ever since he came back from that injury, he's been Mr. Consistent. You know, he he rarely has a bad game and he rarely makes bad decisions. And, and that was one of the first games I've seen in, in quite a while, probably since the same time last season, where he's been making a few bad decisions. Normally, he makes the right pass. Um, so it shows you the level he's playing at the moment, you know, whereas I think last season his six or seven out of 10 was probably him being really quiet and not being in the game. His six or seven out of 10 this season is him still being probably one of the best players, if not the best player on the pitch. Uh, and, and on your second question, I think, you know, that type of player, you're right. There's, there's no one like him. Mason Mount is, is an excellent player. James Madison is an excellent player. But but they're nowhere near, anywhere near, I think, his ability and also the type of player he is. And I think against... What what players like him are do for your team is is against the better teams like you know we played Belgium the other day but you know the better teams in the tournaments what he's going to be able to do is able to take the ball in tight situations and if the other team's pressing against you and, and they're playing the high press he's the kind of player that you want because he can take a ball and he can dribble past one two three players and open spaces up that you otherwise would have to play very intricate passes for or, or get a little bit lucky with a deflection or something you know it's just not going to happen. Uh, and really, the team should be being built around him because, you know, obviously I'm biased. I'm an Aston Villa fan, but we see him week in, week out. You know, he's he's just a he's he's almost like a throwback to a, an old school footballer, but with mm. the physical attributes of a modern footballer. So, you know, three four years ago, like I said, he was he had those those attributes in terms of his dribbling and and the way he carried the ball. He's always had that from from a very young age, and I think a lot of that stems from from Gaelic uh, from. Um, I think Gaelic football or Gaelic football, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of the sense from that. Um, uh, a lot of that ability comes from that. But his physical attributes, his pace and strength have, have come at the back of him being off in that in that second year in the championship, where he worked a lot on his mm. on himself. Uh, and and since then he's carried that on. And I think John Terry had a lot to do with that in terms of uh, the you know his sort of uh, his impression that John Terry made on on Jack Grealish in terms of how professional he was, but also the coaches behind the scenes as well and the fitness guys behind the scenes. And ever since then, you know, he's got quicker and stronger every year, year on year. And you saw against Leicester, you know, one of the one of the criticisms that Southgate had of Jack Grealish was, it wasn't a criticism of him, but it was almost a criticism of him because he was talking about players that, you know, who needed pace and 
uh, players out wide that had pace to come on against um, against Denmark. Where actually Jack Grealish is very quick, uh, and he's outpaced players with, you know, with the ball he's quicker than uh, without it almost, uh, and he's able to glide past players at pace and players that you would think fullbacks that you think are just as quick if not quicker than him he's able to almost you know run past them at ease and that's just the way he carries the ball and and that's the kind of player you need in international football and that's the kind of player you need to be building your team around. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the kind of limited budget Villa had in the summer especially needing to bring in 10, 11, maybe even 12 players at a cost of around 150 million the owners of, of the club would be the top of the rich list. Uh, and when they came in, obviously taken over from G, who who was leaving the club in a very bad state, almost in administration, the combination of, I suppose, a rich Egyptian and, and a rich American, uh, at the time when I saw it, you know, being a United fan, it, it did have alarm bells going off for me, you know, thinking of the Glazers and, mm. and using the club just as a moneymaker and, and leveraging with heavy debt. But they seem to have a good balance in terms of, obviously giving Villa some funds, obviously they're not going insane in the amount of transfers they're doing, but sensible signings and funds are there when required, but also taking a step back. Certainly looks to me that they're quite in the background um, a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely they are. They are the... Uh, or Eden's, whoever it is. Yeah, who, so, yeah, so, you know, so what? Yeah, so um, just in terms of the influence the owners have had in the past couple of years... Uh, have you seen that as a positive impact on the club in terms of their obviously their patience and their investment and and taking the club really from the brink that Tony G left them in? Yeah, and no, I think I think what you've got is um, a complete opposite of what we had before. So Tony G was a bit of an unknown. Uh, no one really knew anything about him. He came in with huge promises and and you know huge funds apparently, uh, but we never really saw that uh, apart from the early part of of his tenure. But what we've got now is, is you know, serial successful businessmen. You know, these these two are successful in their own right. They've built businesses. They know how to run a business and they know what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done. And and they've definitely shown a level of patience with, with Dean Smith because there was a certain amount of clamour for, for him, uh, especially around Christmas, January time, for him to be sacked, I think, by not a majority of Villa fans, but a significant minority of Villa fans, I would say, enough to make a noise. But they, they stuck by him. Uh, and really, in terms of their day-to-day running, I think I think Suarez does a lot of the work because I think he's based in London, whereas Eden's is majority is, is usually in America. Um, but they've left most of the day-to-day running to Christian Perslow, who is a well-known individual in football. You know, he was at Chelsea and Liverpool before. Um, he understands the game. Uh, and he's not everyone's cup of tea, but I think you probably need that as a CEO, that kind of character. Um, you don't want someone who's Mr. Nice, nice, uh, Mr. Nice guy. You know, you want someone who's going to be a little bit contentious, but also willing to stand up for their club. And I think Christian Perslow has done that. He's not, he's not, I mean, he's not my cup of tea uh, personally, but I think as a CEO, he, he's the right kind of individual. And, and it shows you the level of, um, level of ability our owners have in terms of picking the right individuals, um, and letting them get on with the job. And I think that only bodes well for our future. And I think the, the thing that's been the most impressive for him hasn't been, uh, sorry, the, been the most impressive for me hasn't been the, the the signings that we've made for our first team, but it's also it's, it's more of the work that we're doing in the academy. So um, l- probably something that's gone unnoticed to to the mainstream is is the amount of work that we've been doing in terms of looking at our recruitment, both for the first team but also the academy. So we're signing a lot of the top players in Europe uh, and poaching them from you know other teams. Uh, for example, Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal, Tottenham, you know, these players have all been linked with these other teams and potentially going to them. And then we've come in and, and managed to sign them, which, you know, potentially bodes well for our future. So there's a there's a good crop of youngsters coming through there. And I think what the, the owners are trying to do is obviously build a successful first team, but also build a sustainable team as well that will be, um, you know, supplemented by youngsters and academy players coming through that can get into the first team and and also means obviously they don't have to spend lots and lots of money every year year on year they can afford to look at the youngsters and look at the academy players to come in and help like i say supplement the team and improve the team year on year as well uh, omar it's phil here uh, i just want to talk a little bit about about dean smith um you 
he seems like a really a really likable guy. I mean, when they stayed up last season, he talked about, you know, t- taking Jack Grealish off for a few shots and you know, he's a, a local boy uh, <laughs> managing the team that he supports. Um, and they, like all in all, it seems like a really a good news story. Like you said, though, last kind of December, January, there was murmurings about, about his position at the club. And certainly a lot of clubs in that position would have and in the past have acted on that and replaced the manager. And I, I don't know how much blame outside of Villa people would have put upon the club for acting in that situation. But the board have been rewarded for sticking with Dean Smith. I mean, the work that we've talked about so far that he's put in with his coaching staff to bring them to this point. And um, how much credit does Dean Smith deserve from uh, for the shape Villa are in today, from when he took over them in the championship to a team now, obviously right at the top of the nascent Premier League table, but with a squad that looks capable of sustaining a place in the division? Oh, a massive amount of credit, a massive amount, a huge amount of credit. You know, I, I was one that was uh, maybe um, you know a little bit worried, a little bit concerned back in the early part of this year um, about whether he was the right man. Um, but I was always willing to give him time. But I think if you look at his record and what he's done, uh, and especially I think that the key is really how he changed the team after the lockdown period. The fact that he was able to have such a massive influence on the team and, and the way that we approach games made such a difference for us to stay up. And I think that only that only gives you, you know, that only that only bodes well for our future as well. But you know, if you look at his record, you know, he came in into the into the team as the manager when you know we'd had a really poor start and, and Steve Bruce had had a cabbage thrown at him and the squad was in a little bit of disarray and we nearly nearly went into administration and you know it was all going wrong and uh, you know he came us came in and you know got that we got that little bit of a new manager bounce but then we struggled again because we didn't have any defenders um, but he's managed to get Tyron Mings in and Courtney House in in, in in that January window and then we were on a 10 game winning run which is you know a record that you know, you just it's going to live long in the in the memories of Villa fans and in the history books. And then beyond that, I think last season, you know, I definitely think there was a bit of naivety from him and the coaching staff because not only were our players new to the league, but also they were new to the league. So mm. they came in thinking that we can play a certain way, and you know, even if we're winning, we're going to go on and score the next goal, um, and that sort of attitude, which. As Villa fans in the summer, we were really excited by and, you know, we were praising him for it. But actually, in reality, what happened was we lost a lot of leads and, and lost a lot of points, especially against the big teams. But the fact that he was able to change that and look at himself and, and realise that he needed to change himself as well and the way he was approaching games is, is, is a level of humility that you need as a manager, I think. And, and that, again, only bodes well. And then that's when he carried on this season. And the way I think the big thing with Dean Smith and, and the coaching staff as well is the way that they improve players. I think he you know, he likes to see himself as a proper coach. Not only is a good man and manager, but he's a proper coach, and he's always improved players. I think you know he the, every player we've brought in has improved under him. Uh, I think and I think the primary example this season, and a player probably has gone a little bit unnoticed to, again to the mainstream is, is Esri Konza, who's been mm-hmm. our rock really uh, this season and, and sort of the latter part of last season. You know he's uh, this time last season. You know he looked like a player that potentially. Maybe the Premier League came too soon for him. Maybe he needed a loan spell and, and he wasn't quite ready for it. And this year he looks every bit uh, of an England centre-back. You know, that, that's the level he's playing at at the moment. And he's almost uh, overshadowing Tyron Mings a little bit, you know, the way that he's playing and how competent he's been at centre-back. And that's all to do with, obviously, the work that Esri Conte is doing in the background, but also the, the work that the, the coaching staff are doing with him. And, you know, again, like you say, you know, I think Dean Smith does deserve a massive amount of credit. And the fact that he's a Villa fan is only... Only adds, you know, only adds to it really. Um, I think even if you forget that, I think even then, you know, he should be being lauded in the media. And and you know, there's a lot of talk and a lot of clamour around Bielsa. And obviously, I understand why. You know, he's such a, an amazing manager and coach, and uh, has done so much in the game. But but Dean Smith, what he's done this season, you know, he deserves a massive amount of credit and, and should be getting a lot more praise than he is. I think. Omer, um, obviously it's really early into the season, uh, four games, four wins, but have the objectives been raised a little bit um, after the start? I mean, looking at your next couple of games with Leeds, Southampton, um, a tough game at Arsenal, but then it's kind of a pretty decent run of games on paper up until uh, the new year. Is, is I, Obviously it's important not to get ahead of yourselves too early, but have the objectives been changed or are you kind of, you know, pretty much happy with a with a top half finish maybe or, or or is there a potential given the year that we're seeing with a lot of kind of wacky results that something crazy could happen with Aston Villa? 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. And we were talking about this on a we were yeah. talking about this on our podcast, um, you know, just the other night. And it's a it's a great question because I think you know I'm quite an optimistic Villa fan, uh, and I went into the season thinking, oh, you know, there's a potential there we could potentially break the top ten if we do really well and everything goes for us. Um, and, and I think most Villa fans would have said, you know, if we can be comfortable away from relegation, maybe finish sort of 12th to 15th, and 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 not have to worry and go into the last few games about relegation, then they'd be happy with that. But I always thought that we could always push on from that. But the fact that, you know, the way that we've started, I think the majority of the fans now not expect a top 10 finish, but will be disappointed if we don't get a top 10 finish. Uh, let's put it that way. And I think a lot of it depends on injuries. Like I said earlier, you know, if we do get one or two injuries, like other teams seem to be getting, uh, and also we get we seem to be getting a bit of rub the green as well, I think, because, you know, there's been a number of key players injured against us every game. Um against the teams that we've played. So Vardy, obviously, last game, and, and Soyuncu and Ndidi. The game before that, we had Thiago and, and Mane. And this game looks like Calvin Phillips against Leeds is going to be out as well. So that's helped as well. But I think as long as we can stay injury-free, then top 10 is definitely achievable and something that I think most Villa fans would be looking at. Whether we go beyond that, I think every Villa fan is secretly dreaming of us breaking the top six or top four. And even some Villa fans, a tiny minority, are even thinking about the title. But that's <laughs> that's those yeah. fans who are, who are maybe, uh, well, definitely daydreaming. But, you know, we, we, we will see. I think you've got to, you know, I know it's a cliche, but you've got to take it game by game, especially yeah. in this current environment, because you just don't know. You know, you might have a really good run, but then suddenly two or three of your players get, uh, you know, have to quarantine or, or something like that. And, and suddenly you're you're down to the bare bones and, and you're going to struggle the next game. And then you have to, you know, pull back from that. And, you know, as you know, confidence breeds confidence and wins breeds, mm. breeds wins. So it's one of those seasons you just don't know what's going to happen. And I've, I've said in our podcast that expect the unexpected this season. I think there's definitely going to be a team that's going to break the top six or break the top four because of the way things are going and, and the way that it's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of goals going in, as you've seen, and, and teams not playing as well as they normally do. And there's a lot severe lack of concentration by a lot of players. And I think the fans not being there is having a massive impact. So, you know, there could be a team that breaks there, and I think there will be, you know, you know why not us? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the window seems to be open, so uh, so why not Villa, like you said? Um, dare to dream. Great stuff, Omar. Um, thanks for joining us, Stephen. Um, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, look forward to hopefully speaking to you soon.